A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Vaccination, fluoridation, GMO, 5G, COVID-19, even acupuncture. What, what do these things have in common, Matt? Uh, medical science related. They've got myths associated with it. Yeah. A bit of controversy. Yeah. Cons- Conspiracies. Yes, yes. So why? Why do these particular topics have common medical myths or conspiracy theories associated with them? It's a hard one. I'm not sure I'm the right person for it, but I think I know someone who might be. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mark's medical podcast. We are lucky enough to have joining us Dr. Stephen Novella, who's an American clinical neurologist and professor at Yale University School of Medicine. Now, Steve is well known for his involvement in the skeptical movement or the skeptical community. If you don't know what skepticism is, Steve will tell us. Now, he's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's a contributor of multiple blog posts like Science-Based Medicine and Neurologica, and we're lucky enough to have Steve with us today. So, Steve, I think the very first thing we want to ask you is skepticism. What does it mean to be a skeptic? What is the skepticism movement? And are you able to give us just a bit of a brief um, introduction as to how you got into the skeptic movement? Yeah, so skepticism, modern skepticism, not sort of the philosophical skepticism that people talked about hundreds or thousands of years ago, but the modern skeptical movement is all about wanting to believe what's actually true, right? That's pretty much it in a nutshell. How do we know anything? How do we know what to believe? And once you start asking that question, you know, which is philosophers and psychologists called metacognition, you start thinking about thinking, right? So now you're not just believing whatever feels good, uh, or you're not just blowing in the winds of whoever you happen to talk to last or your biases or whatever. Once you start to really question, what's the process? What process do I do in order to make sure that I'm believing what I should believe and and you know, being skeptical of or, or doubting the things that I really shouldn't believe. And that is a lifelong process. You know, I think it's something that this is part, I think, of being, you know, an intellectually honest, you know, curious human being. You want to think about your own process of thinking. Skepticism is really just a formalized, you know, process of doing that. But, you know, for everyday person everyday life, not necessarily for just for textbooks or philosophers or, you know, egghead discussion for day to day, man, you're, especially now with multimedia, you read a hundred claims a day, probably 98 of them are wrong, you know? So how do you sort through all of that? There's a, there's a, it turns out there's a massive skill set involved. And, you know, we are we're just trying to improve public understanding of that 
skill set and its importance. So had you always had the inclination to think like this? Do you think this is for some people innate? Was it innate for you or has it been a steep learning curve? Were there there moments in your life where you think back and you go, should have thought more skeptically about that when I was younger. How has that journey um, progressed for you? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly when I was younger, I wasn't anything like I am now in terms of skepticism. Uh, innate's a tough question because by the time I think you're old enough to be reflective enough to remember or think about what you're like, it's too late. You've already been massively influenced by your family, your culture, your friends or whatever. So who knows? What What I remember is that the science enthusiasm piece was always there as long as I could remember. I was always fascinated by the ability of science to transport me to another world and another perspective. So like early on, like a lot of kids, I loved dinosaurs because I, I didn't just, you know, it wasn't just the fascination with the dinosaurs. It was just the idea. Wow. Like there was this entirely different world, you know, here just in the past. And then astronomy was the same thing. Like, Oh my God, there's an entire universe out there. We're the tiniest little speck in this, massive universe and there's all kinds of interesting stuff going out there. So I just love that. I ate that up. Uh, but that's not skepticism, right? That's just science, maybe science literacy, literacy, science enthusiasm. Um, but that's sort of where it started. But at the same time, see, at the same time, I started consuming what popular culture offered up as science. And most of that was shit, right? Yeah, most yeah. of that was pseudoscience. And so I started watching in search of and documentaries about UFOs and cryptozoology, Bigfoot, Bermuda Triangle. I was as fascinated by that as I was by real science and I couldn't tell the difference. And, and it was presented the same to me. You know, authority figures in, in documentaries saying stuff, you know. Yeah. So, any- and, and go ahead. Oh, at- at any point, did you believe in these kind of theories? Oh, yeah, all of it. Yeah. All of it. I believed all of it. Uh, there, was no, there was no real filter. It was just, oh, this is all cool science stuff that adults are telling me, you know? Mm. And there, there was no adult in my life, either virtually or personally, who modeled any kind of process of sorting it out, you know? Um, so the, the first person that really did that for me was Carl Sagan in Cosmos. Uh, Now, even by then though, I had kind of figured out on my own that there was pseudoscience, but that was, it was, that was more science denial, right? Yeah. So probably the first pseudoscience I really went toe to toe with was creationism, but creationism is science denial, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that I could get. Oh, I, I've already was steeped in evolution, every, you know, evolutionary science, evolutionary theory, read tons of books about it. It was one of my, still is one of my favorite sciences. And so the idea that somebody could deny that it is, exists, that evolution happened, you know, I had, you know, I think I had the reaction that most, you know, new skeptical communicators have. It's like, well, they're just ignorant of the facts. <laughs> you know, they have a knowledge deficit problem. I could fix that. Yeah. I could, I could corner a creationist, give me an hour I'll fill their head, their head with so much facts about evolution and fossil evidence and genetics. They'd have to accept it. They, how could they deny it? That's right. So it that just was makes then, sense thinking yeah. it like that. Yeah, yeah. It makes total sense. So, but of course we now know that that's not completely wrong, but pretty close. I mean, it, it depends on the topic area, but for things like high identity type of belief systems or narratives like creationism, it's not a fact deficit. It's not a knowledge deficit. They have an alternate narrative that is self-contained and that's tied up in all kinds of emotion and identity. And you can't just drop facts on them and think they're going to alter their identity, change the way they make sense of the world. Um, But then, you know, at around the same time that was happening, I was, you know, watching Cosmos and then, you know, Carl Sagan didn't spend a lot of time doing it, but you know, there was one episode in particular that stands out where he says, basically, you know, the evidence for the, the notion that we're being visited by aliens is all, not convincing. There isn't a single good photograph. There was a one piece of definitive evidence. And the first time I'd ever heard that thought process, I'm like, holy shit, it all clicked into place. Like I kind of knew, I I realized, you know, looking back, you know, there, the, I was fascinated by the idea that we're being visited by aliens, but frustrated by the fact that there was nothing 
really firm to grab onto. And then at first you're like, well, it's just around the corner. I just have to find the right person to talk to, you know, and, or it's going to happen. And then after 10 years of that, you're like, what the hell? You know, I start <laughs> to get a little, <laughs> like there's in the back of my head, again, I know now what I was thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, there's just something wrong. There is something wrong. Yeah. Same thing with like ESP or Bigfoot, you know, you're being promised that the evidence were right on the cusp of the evidence. And that's exciting until, you know, the 10th time, like it's just not, it's just not happening. And then when Carl Sagan said that, you know, Hey, the simplest explanation is they're not here. That's mm -hmm. it. And it then like it clicked into place so fast. Cause I think it was already all there. I just like, wouldn't maybe admit it to myself or didn't see that that's what all this means. Yeah. Right. There's no elaborate reason why there's no smoking gun evidence of aliens. It's simple. There are no aliens. It's so simple. And that was, I, you know, I think the beginning of my journey into more hardcore skepticism. And then over the next probably four or five years of my life, every single pseudoscientific belief, fell by the wayside one by one. Because yeah. as soon as you start to look into it, you realize it's vaporware. It's a house of cards, collapses. So was, and this, was this before was your medical training or yes, concurrent before to Before my medical training. And before so did my that, medical training. So did that then, that your skeptic thinking then pivot into more medical style myths, health myths? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So then once I was going through medical school, I already was a skeptic at that point. Now I started to learn, you know, technical detail about medical science and how to think, you know, clinically and scientifically in terms, in terms and did of you, medical science. Do you feel that So it was your, easy to cross those streams. It was very easy. And do you feel that method of thinking helped you a lot in medical school? Because my understanding of, Absolutely. of the traditional kind of medical model of education was you were kind of just told what to know by your professors. and But the more modern... Um, medical schools is more about problem-based learning, critical thinking, and probably less about rote learning. So uh, all I could say is by the time I was going through medical school and I graduated in 1991, it was already steeped in critical thinking and, you know, evaluating the literature. And it wasn't just rote memorization. You can't, it's incompatible. You can't yeah. really be a clinician by memorizing facts and, that the, the culture of medicine, at least those parts of it that I experienced in my training, was very much that like somebody who brute forced their way to medical school through memorizing, you know, we would refer to them as a grind, yeah. you know, and that was a derogatory term. It's like you can't memorize your way into being a good physician. Yeah. You, you need to, you have to be able to think clinically yeah. and those you know, that you start to separate out very quickly in medical school because it's very challenging. You sort of, everyone brings their own strengths and weaknesses, their own skills. And then if you don't identify and shore up your weaknesses quickly, you're going to have problems. You're mm. going to totally have problems. But for me, um, the, the skepticism piece I felt was a huge advantage, a huge advantage, because as a physician, you're an investigator, right? That's mm. mostly what you're doing. Every patient interaction is an exploration that you're, it's, it's a bit of detective work. Um, obviously there's a lot of facts that you do have to know, you know, to have at your fingertips to be able to think of, even begin to think about it. Uh, but it's, um, like every skeptical lesson has a medical analogy. There is a, a medical application to everything that we talk about in skepticism. And so, and, and also being a physician helped me be a better skeptic, right? Cause then you learn in detail how not to trust what anyone says, right? <laughs> like you have that experience a thousand times where here's what person A told me, which is different than what person B told me. And here's the written record, you yeah. know, which is completely different than what both A and B told me because in medicine, we document shit all mm, the time. Mm. Every patient encounter should be documented in detail. And so you begin to realize firsthand, yeah, you know, patients, what they tell you about what they remember is a coin flip. You know, yeah. when, as soon as you compare someone's memory to an objective record, it falls apart. Yeah. Um, so just having that, and then, 
you know, I just think the thing that is critical and, you know, I say this, you know, now as part of my just skeptical talking, just think about anything you know about really well. What's the thing you know about most in this world? Just generalize those lessons to all of knowledge, you know, as just as a, as a starting point, you know, what does the public know about the thing that you know? What did you know before you had the level of expertise that you have? And that's probably the experience that everyone has about every area of knowledge. You know, uh, it's not unique to the, the one thing that you happen to be an expert in. So, you know, there, there's a lot of learning about learning and having knowledge about knowledge. Again, just like thinking about thinking, yeah. it all kind of works together. And once you're in that loop, then you're on a, a different trajectory, you know, for your life, you know, where you actually are a little bit in control of what you think and what you believe because you're still, you, you can't be in total control because we're humans, we're emotional, we're biased, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. You'll never totally get out of your culture, your, the influence of everything that's brought to you to where you are. But it gives you more control than I think anything else does because, you know, it, it gives you the ability to at least reflect upon, you know, why, where, how you got to where you are and how to think about things. So do you think, so I think that's a really good point because when we look at people who believe in conspiracy theories, for example, there's that um, existential or that, that epistemic sort of issue that they have with understanding their environment or trying to control their environment. And they're a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that things are in chaos. And so sometimes I would rather have, you know, uh, some government in control of this, even though it's a, it's a bad agent, then it's just shit that's happening. And so do you think that, um, skeptics, for example, that's, it's human nature. This is one way that they can take control of understanding what's going on is through the method of skepticism or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, certainly that's one of the basic human needs, a, a, a desire for some kind of sense of control. And that uh, is, I think, a motivation behind a lot of superstition. Psychologists have demonstrated that a lot of conspiracy thinking Uh, a lot of belief systems. Belief systems are all about control, you know, giving us a model by which we can explain the world, by which we could predict what's going to happen, by which we can understand why other people are doing what they're doing, why things are happening the way they are. And one of the things that I think that scientists and skeptics and philosophers sort of need to become comfortable with is this idea that we don't have control. You know, we we just don't. And shit is going to just happen. Um, and also, you know, there's multiple layers there because it's also that like we don't know anything, you know, in a, in a kind of an epistemic philosophical sense. All knowledge is provisional and partial. It's an approximation. It doesn't mean it's not reliable. It could be so reliable, in fact, that we could hurl a rocket you know, across the solar system and take pictures of Pluto. That's pretty damn freaking reliable. (laughs) You know, those, those equations have to mean something real in order for that to have happened. So that's, you know, there's stuff that we can hang our hat on, but the, you know, being comfortable with doubt and uncertainty is part of, I think, skepticism, mature skepticism. You can't uh, always have, completely perfect knowledge. And sometimes you have to say, I don't know, or I understand that I don't have access to, you know, firsthand information. Like at some point I had to realize, wow, it's like my understanding of the inner workings of the American government or any government is based upon so many filters that I have no idea. I don't have any idea what's really happening. I only have is different people's interpretations of what's happening and, you know, like, it's like, you know, no one was in the room where it happened, you know, like, because whenever you do sort of get a glimpse behind the curtain, it's nothing, it's nothing like what was being reported. That's right. You know, you, it, and whenever you're directly involved in a story, like, have you ever been in the subject of news reporting of like just generic mainstream news reporting? You yeah. realize it's a, it's to, again, does it I'm not going to, I'm not saying it's all fake news. I'm just saying it's it's indirect. Like there's, 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 um, there's so many assumptions and sometimes it's just poor quality and they have their own narratives that they fall into. Um, and they, they cut a lot of corners. Yeah. Well, one example of that, Matt and I do spinal cord injury research 
and yep. we had one of our uh, uh, commercial television stations, the news, call up. I was actually at the beach. I was going for a swim and they said, look, we want to do an interview about the spinal cord injury work that you're doing. I said, sure. I rushed to the hospital. Um, they interviewed us and they said, so can you just briefly explain what you're doing? Oh, yeah, we're taking you know some cells from the nose. We're purifying them. Ultimately, we want to put them into the injured spinal cord and, you know, we want to do whatever we can, create a nerve bridge and, you know, make, make the, the environment as best as possible to regenerate the injured spinal cord. And they go, and so what is the ultimate goal here? And I go, well, like all spinal cord injury research, we want to get people walking again. And, and they said, um, so you're planning on doing a clinical trial? And I said, yes, we plan on doing a clinical trial in the next five years. And they said, and, and the goal of the clinical trial is to get people walking again. I go, well, yeah, ultimately it is. And then that night on the news, they said, uh, researchers from Griffith University in Queensland plan on getting people walking again within five years. And five I went, years. that is not what I said. I didn't say we're going to get people walking again in five years. And it, yeah. you know, and that's their narrative. That's, that's how they, they hook people in. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, so again, that, that, that's one layer here is um, scientists have to learn how to talk to the media. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's a book for that, you know, which I think if you're going to ever talk to the media, you got to read that book. But the, the problem is that most scientists have one or two encounters during their career with a journalist, you know, yeah. and like you, they like naively tell the truth. Yeah, that's right. They got the better of thinking me. about... <laughs> without thinking about how is this journalist going to craft this narrative and yeah. how do they function? And so, you know, we talk about this on the show all the time. And I just wrote a, an article about this uh, uh, where I think that's what I, the blog post I wrote today, I didn't even bother going into this angle of it, but like the, the headline is not the data. It's not what the study showed. It's the wild speculation at the end of the study. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. right? It's like, this might have implications for schizophrenia research no, it doesn't. This, we're just understanding how the brain works. Can we just leave it at that? That yeah. we're just understanding one tiny, itty, itsy, bitsy little piece of the puzzle of how your brain filters information. No, this isn't going to cure ADHD or schizophrenia. You know, but they, the reports are immediately, what could this lead to? And then yeah. that is the headline. Absolutely. But if you don't know that as a scientist, you're going to fall for it every time. Yeah. yeah and it probably, I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the reasons why there's some distrust um, mm. sort of brewing within the community for some mm. scientists um, and researchers, because all they hear is what's being reported in the news and then nothing yep. eventuates, you know, we, we, it's likely we, we won't get people walking in the next five years. And so they say they lied to us. Why do they keep lying yeah. to us? And so then that right. it's, Continues it's for funding. To yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. It feeds the conspiracy thinking. Yeah. So the other, you know, um, and of course I write about all this in our book, you know, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, that this is, this is sort of how I opened, because I do think this frames it up well. I think when i talking to conspiracy theorists and a lot of people who believe in this or that pseudoscience who talk about they, you know, when you, they were talking about the vague they, like they don't want you to know this or they're yeah. doing that, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, children trying to understand the adult world. They're so far from it that they really have no concept what's really going on. Mm. And so there's a lot of magical thinking that goes on. And also they attribute godlike powers to, to adults, you yeah. know, like infallibility and they know everything. Just ask an adult and they'll know the answer to whatever question you have. And I, you know, so you listen to conspiracy theorists, for example, like they talk about people in the government as if they're not human beings. Yeah, that's, that's like they are, so true. They're these legendary fictional characters from the movies that have like preternatural competence <laughs> and ability and drive and motivation and their tendrils are everywhere. It's like that describes no human being ever. Yeah, like nobody right. could pull off the stuff that you're talking about. You know, people are just people, just muddling their way through. And yes, some people have professionalism and knowledge and ethics and all that stuff. And yes, you can respect them for what they do. But even they are just people. That's right. They're fallible. You know, they're just trying to get through their day just like we are. Uh, but again, that that's then it, that I do think there's an angle. And this is, I think, one of the comfort layers to conspiracy thinking is that one of the unstated major premises of a lot of these belief systems is that there are adults in the world. They may be nefarious, yeah. but I think the idea that there are no adults, metaphorically speaking, is scarier <laughs> than the idea that there are nefarious 
adults that you could expose, you know, and then other adults will help you, ex- whatever, bring them down. Yeah. Then, then it's a struggle. But the idea that, you know, they're really, <laughs> no one's really in charge. That's right. You know, when you really think about it, this is just, it is chaos yeah. that we are just barely keeping at bay with the institutions and the infrastructures that we have. It's meaningful. I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm just going to put it into perspective, you know? And so people assume that when there's a failure, like a very everyday mundane failure of people in power, that it has to be a deliberate conspiracy. Yeah. Because the alternate notion that, no, they're just fallible people who aren't in total control is, is I think scarier. Absolutely. You know? And I think it also gives people something to fight against too. So it gives them yeah. a purpose. And so when you see something like, uh, you know, the vaccination arguments that have been happening for, you know, well over a decade now, uh, people need something to fight against so they don't feel hopeless. So they've yeah. got something to march against. They've got, you know, a, a petition that they can sign because, you know, I, I totally understand, you know, if somebody um, has a child and that child gets diagnosed with autism or, or at least a, on the severe end um, of the spectrum, I can understand that, you know, they would sit back and they would go, why, why did this happen? And, you know, thinking about the significant genetic components associated with autism and to, you know, you say, well, genetics come from you, from parents, but it's not your, you are not to blame, but this is just what's happened. I think people would rather say, no, I think it was in the vaccines and it could have been stopped. And so I'm going to fight against this. Now I've got a cause and Mm -hmm. I don't feel as bad as I felt before. Do you think- It gives meaning to what is otherwise just, it just shit happens. Yes. There's something profoundly unsatisfying, I think, to a lot of people about that notion. It's like, eh, it happens. You know, we yeah. just have life throws you through, throws the dice and we got to deal with it. You know, plus I also think that again, along this theme, if there is a conspiracy, what's the solution? Solution is you expose the conspiracy. Mm. You could do that. Right. If there's no conspiracy and life is just complicated and hard, what's the solution? It means we have to work really hard for small incremental advances, you know, and it's a lot more work. It's a lot more work and it's a, and it's a lot less uh, secure in terms of the outcome. It's like, yeah, we may plug away at a cure for cancer for a hundred years and just continue to make incremental advances. It'll, it'll be better. Like Mm. it's better now than it was 50 years ago. It'll be better in 50 years. But the notion that they have a cure to cancer that they're hiding. It's like, so all we have to do is expose them, man. <laughs> Cancer's cured. It's easy. There you go. Yeah. It's like, no, no, there's no cure for cancer out there. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not real. It's hard problem. It's a yeah. hard problem. And smart people are dedicating their lives, working on it to eke out these slow, steady, incremental advances. That's the best we could do. Uh, so what do you so, think gets people, but, you know, what gets people over that that line. So you said, you, you know, you had that type of thinking at some point in your life, but then you were able to, to sit back, think about thinking and identify the fact that, okay, let's have some skeptical thinking. But it seems to be, there's, there seems to be some people who you just go, I don't think they'll ever get over that line. Do you think that's actually true? Do you think everybody has that capacity to be able to think about thinking and think skeptically? So I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, but I, I do have, I have some partial answers. Uh, so one is, you know, based upon my reading of the psychological research, and I don't think that these are completely answered questions, but what evidence we have suggests a few things. One is that people are different, right? Some people are more intuitive. Other people are more analytical. If you want to break it, use that breakdown, the, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow, type one, type two thinking, right? That's the basic scheme. And it's essentially, you know, do you tend to think about things sort of gut reaction emotionally, or do you tend to break them down and go through the process? In truth, we're all both of those things. We all incorporate both, but some, but there's also a spectrum. You know, people are at more one end, one or the other end of the spectrum. Um, So at the extremes, people are different people are significant. Most people are in the middle again, but there are people at both extremes. So I think for the people who are at the extreme intuitive end of the spectrum where they really, really just don't think analytically at all. Um, 
it, you know, the, I won't say never, I would just say that the amount of work that they would have to invest and do to get over that hump is probably beyond what most people are capable of. Mm. They also don't have a motivation to do it. You know, why would they upend their life? And it's a lot of hard work, you know, to get to some place that they don't see the value in. So yeah, it kind right. of, it, it um, subverts its own, you know, fix, right? It's like you think this way because you think this way. And because you think this way, you don't see the value in not thinking this way. Yeah. And so why would you make them Herculean effort it would take to change what you don't think is broken? Uh, so people tend to be stuck in that strategy, you know, that, that mode of thinking, um, unless something knocks them out of it or just whatever the vagaries of chance, something happens, occurs to them. Again, it's hard to predict. And so, um, at the, on the other end, at the other time, you know, the psychologists have found that pretty much, you know, maybe with very few exceptions at the most extreme ends. You know, most people could learn most things. It's the real difference is how much time and effort would it take you. Yeah. So for some people, you might be able to accomplish some goal or master some skill in 5,000 hours where the average person takes 10,000 hours and somebody who's disinclined might take 20,000 hours to get to the same place. But if you work hard enough, you'll get there. Yeah. You know, that that logic breaks down when you talk about competing on a world stage, because obviously you're talking about the 0.0001%, you know, of human capability. You need to have all the stars need to align, you know, mm. to get into that realm. But for most people, if you want to become really good at something, you can. It's just a matter of how much time and effort you'd have to dedicate. So I think anybody could become a critical thinker. Um, I think it'd be a lot harder for some people than others. And I think that uh, the, there are people who are stuck in a belief system that really keeps them from becoming critical thinkers. And we don't know how to get them out. There's yeah. no formula where we could say with any kind of high probability, you're going to crack people out of a cult or a conspiracy theory or any kind of closed off belief system. That's just a cognitive trap that we have to be aware of. And I think we have to teach people very young. That, that closed belief systems are a cognitive trap yeah. and you can't let yourself fall into it. The problem is once you've fallen into it, by definition, you're trapped. You know, yeah. you, it, it precludes its own refutation. It keeps you there. Um, and there's no formula for getting people out. So when we, when we think about, you know, cause like you said earlier, you were saying, if I can just throw the facts at these people, it makes sense. They should just be able to believe. But then obviously you found out that individuals will have their own narrative, their own story, and they want to adhere to that story. They want everything yeah. to align for that. So as a clinician, if you have a patient coming in and they have this type of thinking where it's narrative based and you're seeing them for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, how how do you how do you break this or do do you plant seeds? What is your your approach? Yeah. So first of all, the the patient physician relationship is different, right, than a say science communicator public relationship or a personal relationship. So you're you're operating within a different paradigm, right? Uh, and there's professional ethics that are involved as well. So it's not really my place as a, a physician to, to put my beliefs onto an, my patient or to challenge their beliefs or their faith or whatever. And so I don't. Um, but at the same time, so the approach that I take is I'm unapologetic and open and honest about the fact that my approach to medicine is science-based medicine, right? That's my approach. If they want a faith healer, I'm not their doctor. You know, don't, don't, Mm. Look for that from me. You're, I don't. That's not what I do. Um, the fact that my patient is seeing me means they've already selected to do that, right? They've self-selected a little bit. So I'm not going out there and foisting my services on people who didn't ask for it. And I explain to them this is how I operate. I read the literature. I give you the. I'll give you the best scientific advice I can give. And that's you know, if you want to talk about things that are outside the scientific evidence, I will you know, limit my discussion of them to what, to the extent that the, um, that our knowledge and, you know, and the science goes, but that's it. But 
when it, you know, if you start to venture beyond scientific yeah. questions, you know, I'll just, that's it. I, I, I won't go there. I won't, uh, I won't express my political opinion to mm. my patients. You know what I mean? It just, yeah. we, I say, Hey, this is what I recommend based upon my understanding of the science. So, and so, then you make the decision, you know? So you made the point of about science-based medicine. So how, do, how does this, how does this differ to evidence-based medicine? So science-based medicine, uh, which is a term that I coined specifically to, to point out what I consider to be the main problem with evidence-based medicine. And that is in practice, there's sort of controversy and disagreements about whether this is true in theory, but in practice, uh, evidence-based medicine looks at the clinical evidence, right? And the idea was that, well, sometimes physicians are doing things, you know, healthcare providers are doing things because they make sense in the absence of clinical evidence to show that it actually works. And what we want to do is base our practice on the best evidence available. So it's evidence-based medicine. But what they do in practice is focus entirely on the clinical evidence. Mm. Um, but there's actually a very complicated relationship between clinical and preclinical or basic science evidence. Now, within mainstream medicine, again, remember, this is coming up in the 1980s, right? And at that time, it's basically the, before the alternative medicine phenomenon. Physicians, generally speaking, weren't using treatments that didn't make sense, right? They were using treatments that made sense that may or may not have had evidence. Sure. And so the fix for that was to say, no, we need to base it on evidence. But at the same time, and this may just be historical accident, you know, the promoters of alternative medicine, which was really just fraud in medicine, they sort of decided to rebrand what used to be health fraud as alternative, you mm. know, and the branding totally worked, you know, they completely bamboozled everybody. Uh, and they said evidence-based medicine is fantastic. They loved evidence-based medicine because it, it doesn't consider prior probability. It doesn't mm. consider basic science. So now they kind of broke evidence-based medicine by proposing highly implausible treatments and then, but focusing entirely on the clinical evidence and here's the thing, clinical evidence is messy and tricky yeah, yeah. and often ambiguous. And so they love it. They could live in the ambig ambiguity and they got very good at sort of manufacturing ambiguity within clinical evidence. And EBM shielded them from the massive implausibility, like the basic science implausibility of their claims. Mm. And so science-based medicine is a deliberate reaction to that saying, no, we really have to to fix that problem by saying that you need to consider prior plausibility and put the clinical evidence in the context of all the science. So as right? an example Basic of science, this, uh, like acupuncture where you could, yeah. you could have some sort of uh, clinical trial and it shows some benefit to acupuncture to a control, whatever that may be. But if you look at what's underpinning all this, it's simply just laying hands on somebody is where the evidence lies. And so it's not necessarily the acupuncture, but you bring it back to the science of it and it's simply just mm -hmm. laying hands. Is that what you sort of like what you're referring to? Yeah. So, you know, having done this now for, for many, many years with my colleagues, you know, the, our approach has evolved and I think become a lot more sophisticated uh, in a few ways. So one piece is that, you know, if you operationalize what we're talking about, uh, statistically, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, we, we talk about like the weakness of the p-value as sort of the one measure of whether or not results were positive or negative, and rather you need to at least add in there Bayesian analysis. Now, Bayesian analysis is if we start with our prior probability and then we have the new evidence, now it's our post-probability. Mm. And if the prior probability is zero, like with homeopathy, what's yeah. the prior probability that homeopathy works? Well, if you believe the laws of physics, <laughs> it's, it's zero. zero. <laughs> if you want to say that it's not absolutely zero because you have to include and error bars on human knowledge, go right ahead. Unless they're testing so, whether it, it hydrates. If, 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 if the outcome is hydration, then maybe there's a... Yeah. <laughs> and even then, because they put it on a sugar pill and it, yeah. and it evaporates. So it's Sorry. just a sugar pill at the end of the day. 
um, most of the time, or it's a little bit of alcohol or whatever. But uh, so the prior probability of homeopathy working is is as close to zero as we can get in science, yeah. right? Functionally, it's zero. So in a Bayesian approach, what would the clinical evidence need to look like in order to be able to say that this works, this treatment works? Yeah. Now, I will allow that there is a level of clinical evidence that is solid enough that we have to reverse engineer from there and say, okay, clearly there's something happening and clearly our basic science is insufficient to explain what's happening. The problem with alternative medicine proponents is that they do that for everything. They have no threshold. They do that for things that just seem to work, even if they break the most fundamental laws of physics and chemistry, biology or whatever, or even just common sense or logic, it doesn't matter. It seems to work. That's enough. That's their threshold. Mm. Whereas I think a science-based medicine threshold is, and we've, we've spent a lot of ink, you know, virtual ink defining what that threshold is. Yeah. I'd like, before I take claims seriously, let alone believe them, just like get my attention, like, okay, there's some, maybe there's something going on here. I want to see a large effect size, right? That is statistically significant, clinically significant at the same time that is independently replicated with appropriately rigorous clinical trials yeah. design, right? Meaning it's blinded, they assess the blinding, et cetera. So we get there, we get there with treat, with like the treatments that actually work. It takes, it takes like 10, 20 years yeah. to get there, but you could get there, you know. Um, you never get there ever, ever, ever with anything that seems like bullshit out of the gate, right? That seems yeah. like pseudoscience breaking the laws of physics. What you get is just poor quality evidence or it doesn't replicate. It's a one-off or the, you know, there's always something about the design that's, mm. that's squirrely. Well, the basic science um, would the, support the, the it, evidence, right? The evidence is ultimately negative, but they're cherry picking. Like they never get to the point where yeah. the evidence should be taken seriously. So with acupuncture, for example, you know, the problem with acupuncture is that whenever you properly blind it, the effect goes away. Yeah. So it turns out, if you look at the totality of the acupuncture research, which is the other thing, you can't just cherry pick, you got to look at the totality of the research. You know, it, there's a strong signal in acupuncture research that it doesn't matter where you stick the needle and it doesn't even matter if you stick the needle, right? And, and there are studies which show that if you randomly poke the skin with toothpicks, you get the exact same effect as doing correct acupuncture where you're inserting needles to the proper depth by mm. a trained acupuncturist in the right, the right locations. Um, so if the location doesn't matter and the insertion doesn't matter, then what is acupuncture? What is yeah. it? Because yeah. acupuncture, if you, by every single definition I've ever read and by acupuncturist is it's inserting needles into acupuncture points. Um, but then, the, then they're internally inconsistent. They'll say, okay, but you know, the points aren't that important. So it's just sticking needles. Yeah, but you don't even have to do that, you know? Yeah. So what is it then? What is it? It's just all nonspecific and nonspecific effects are not specific. You know, you can't say that acupuncture is a thing yeah. when it only has nonspecific effects. Then they cheat by using electrical stimulation through acupuncture needles. What's an acupuncture needle? It's a freaking needle. You're doing... You know, you're doing tens, right? You're doing, yeah. you know, electrical nerve stimulation, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. That's a different treatment that you're calling electroacupuncture. And then you mix that in with the other acupuncture studies. Um, and then, you know, there's also other layers too, like there's bias. You know, do you know what the percentage of acupuncture clinical trials coming out of China are positive? Yeah. What yeah. would your guess be? I would say... Uh, Higher than 50%. 100%. It's 100%. There were two different studies, one in 2001, I think one in 2011, which reviewed the literature. Now, worldwide, it's about 60%, which is what you should get for no effect, yeah. right? Just throw in like researcher bias, p-hacking, all the usual things, and you get this residue of 60%, but it doesn't really replicate. And, the, you know, and then there's also the decline effect where the more rigorous the trial, the smaller the effect, and the best trials are negative. You got to look at all those patterns, right? Mm. But if you look at China, 
It's a hundred percent positive. <laughs> that's impossible. Even if it did work, that's yeah, fraud. Yeah, right? yeah, that yeah, that wouldn't fraud. happen in a fair set of trials, even if it did work. And so how many systematic reviews of acupuncture are contaminated by oh, yeah. trials coming out of China that we know have to be fraudulent because yeah. they have a Im statistically impossible record and how many are contaminated by electroacupuncture and then even then they can't get a positive systematic review. If you do a good systematic <laughs> yeah, review, <laughs> it's usually something wishy-washy like, ah, there's something there. We got to study it some more, but we can't really conclude that it works. You yeah. know, that's always what we find. And why do we find that? Because it does, again, it's like, why are there no clean pictures of UFOs? Because they're not here. Yeah. Why is there no clean picture of Bigfoot? Because he doesn't exist. Why can we never get to that class one clear evidence of these alternative medicine modalities? Because they don't work. Because yeah. they break the laws of physics or biology or whatever. That's the simple explanation. That's Occam's razor. And there's a clear pattern there. There's a clear pattern. But if you want to believe in it, you say, well, it's a conspiracy or Westerners don't know how to study acupuncture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what does that, that mean? Yeah. <laughs> we don't know how to do science. Our science doesn't work. You know, you need some kind of magical Eastern science in order yeah. to control for variables, you know, but that's just hand waving dismissal of what the evidence is plainly stating, mm. you know, um, but there's a lot of motivated reasoning there. There's That's a lot right. of there's literally billions of dollars to be made by convincing people that nonsense works. So do you think they're they're doing it intentionally? As in, do you think they know that every time uh, it gets something like this gets discredited and they start to shift the goalposts? Do you what what percentage of these people do you think they go okay? Let's think of something else, maybe this, or do you think that they they they're truly not aware of their thinking? So it's both. And I don't know the percentages and it's variable with individuals. I think a lot of them are like me when I still believed in UFOs. There was that nagging thing. It's like, yeah, I'm waiting for that good UFO picture or like <laughs> you know, the, the solid piece of evidence that's irrefutable or whatever, but it's never there. And I had excuses for why it wasn't there that I didn't really quite believe myself, but it was good enough, you know, yeah. to kind of go along with the narrative. So I think a lot of people are doing that. And there's um, people who are true believers, man, they're just hundred percent. They believe it. They don't have a skeptical bone in their body. They don't know how to think skeptically or scientifically. They're doing it wrong and they believe. And then there are at the other end of the spectrum, there are definitely con artists who don't care what the truth is. Mm. And they're, not, they're, it's, they're not even lying. They're just completely indifferent to the truth, you know? Uh, and there's every combination in between. And I, you know, unless I catch somebody in conscious fraud, or they've been caught in conscious fraud, you don't know. And so I don't even waste my time trying to figure it out or think about it. It's like functionally, it's the same thing. Yeah. There's a process for doing science right and you're doing it wrong. Your motivations are kind of irrelevant. I'm never going to know them anyway. I can't read your mind. Whether you whether you managed to convince yourself or you're, it's pious fraud where you, you're cutting corners and you know you're cutting corners because you believe that it's true or... You're just not thinking about it too carefully because the money's really good mm. or you're ignoring the warning bells going on in the back of your head. Who knows? Yeah. It's all, it's everything. It's all those things. Just, um, but, you know, and but I think a huge part of it is a critical thinking deficit. Yeah. You know, that is a huge part of it. Just with your point on mistruth and, you know, us living in the world of post-truth, um, transitioning maybe into the COVID context, uh, are you seeing a new phenomena in the way that people are responding to this particular pandemic? Um, uh, I, I just looked at a recent study and it actually showed that um, education doesn't seem to play a, a huge role in terms of um, the way people are reacting to um, whether it's um, whether the COVID crisis is, is exaggerated or whether it's um, been created by uh, humans and propagated by humans rather it seems that it's a more political driven phenomenon now are you seeing new things with this particular pandemic no i don't think there's anything new uh from a skeptical point of view or critical thinking point of view it's all the same stuff just applied to covid uh you know again post social media things move a lot faster you know but other than that it's all the same stuff so you talk about like for example um that education level doesn't really predict whether 
what narrative you believe about COVID-19. Well, that's 30-year-old data. We knew that 30 years ago, right? That education level doesn't really track with um, belief in pseudoscience until you get to postgraduate science education, postgraduate science education. So until you're doing research, you're, you don't, you know, again, taking just the public at large, you, you can get through college education, you know, you know, undergraduate education without knowing how to think scientifically, yeah. right? You may know a lot of science, but until you're doing research and you're learning at that level systematically, you, you probably don't understand that. Yeah, I didn't so think scientifically until I was- That's what we're trying to change. In yeah. my- like th- going through my PhD, you know, you, you yeah. did a four year degree, did an honors, then went into, still couldn't think scientifically enough. And in actual fact, your podcast, Skeptics Guide to the Universe, while I was right at the beginning of my PhD, actually is what tweaked my mindset. It just, it just shifted. That's all it was. It was just a shift of focus. So I, I had yeah. that thinking there, but it just made me go, just ask why again? Just ask the cause behind it. Just think about this, think about that. And it actually, it, it supplemented my research because when you've got that skeptical mindset and it's probably going to be a number of people listening to this and the, the word skeptical may sound like a dirty word. It may sound like a, a strange word for people to use, but the skeptical mindset is what helped me think scientifically and to create experiments that had appropriate controls um, and organize everything properly. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a requirement. It's a requirement to do science properly. Totally. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of scientists don't get, you know, thoroughly get that training. If you look at, uh, you know, surveys and reviews, et cetera, of like what scientists are actually doing, 30%, you know, fully 30% of researchers admit to doing what constitutes fraud, yeah. you know, what we would call p-hacking. Uh, and I think that most of them don't realize that it's fraud. You know, like they don't see that, that it's wrong. Yeah. You know, like they, oh, I just kept collecting data until I crossed over clinical, you know, statistical significance. This is That's when they get hung cheating. up on their theories, right? They, yeah. they, they have their niche that they've built over time where yeah. they, they say, oh, this is my hypothesis. But in actual fact, it's not your hypothesis. You're, just trying, you're not trying to prove yourself wrong here. You're trying to prove yourself exactly. right. And right. when they don't, this is when they're setting themselves up to commit fraud. Yeah, right, right, right. So I do think you learn that, um, but, you know, most scientists learn that from their mentors. And so yeah. it depends on who your mentors were. And I think it needs to be more systematic. Like every researcher needs to have a class on p-hacking. Absolutely. You just need to, to, you know, how can you be a researcher without doing it? You know, every clinician needs to have a class on how to think skeptically about the information that you're going to be using both to determine what treatments are effective and also how to think about what your patients are telling you. Yeah. You know, it, Skepticism is absolutely woven into that. Police officers, detectives need to know how not to lead witnesses, yeah. how not to prove their hypothesis correct, right? They need to know that they have to prove their hypothesis incorrect, yeah. consider the alternative, all that stuff. So every profession who has a responsibility to you know, investigate or to make use of information needs to have it as part of their basic skill set, but it's just not. It's not part of our education in general. And it's kind of an afterthought, you know, that if you're lucky enough to have the right mentor, you know, you'll, you'll learn it. Or if you sort of teach yourself as you go along, you know? And so that's kind of what the big piece of what the skeptical movement is trying to do is mainstream critical thinking. Yeah, absolutely. This needs to be woven into the culture, you know, and it, it is happening to some degree. If you look at, you know, surveys that touch upon it, you know, I think, everything's getting more, right? There's more belief in conspiracies. There's more science denial, but there's also more critical thinking going on too because mm. access to information is just, oh, it's just off the hook. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And so we're just competing in the, you know, that idea marketplace trying to get science, critical thinking, media literacy, all those things sort of as high profile as possible. So I'm being mindful of your time here. 
Um, is there, are there any last points that you would like to add in regards to just giving some advice? You've given obviously a lot of advice and I think it's all been wonderful. Um, is there any final bits of information that you'd like to pass on to aspiring health professionals, whether they're doctors, nurses, paramedics, physiotherapists, whatever it may be in regards to skeptical thinking, uh, and how best to approach it? And maybe resources as well. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I've tried to build a resource for the science-based medicine, you know, we multiple articles a week doing this by, and I think that's one, a good way to learn, you know, is to sort of do it by example. This is how you ask skeptical questions, you know? So one bit of general advice is question everything that's simplistic, but I think that's the beginning, right? That's not the end. Yeah. That's the beginning of your journey. Say, is this really true? How do we really know that this is true? And, but that's, a long journey that you just have to, it's a lifelong journey. Don't ever stop. Don't ever think you've arrived because then you, all that means is you stop learning yeah. and it's hard. I'm still learning things today. I mean, it's, just, it's it, there's nothing easy about it. You know, if you want, if you want to make your career as a professional, you know, taking the responsibility of other people's lives into your hands, I think you owe it to, to them and to yourself, you know, to, to be the best clinician that you can be. And that means being a skeptical clinician. You know, you have to learn the tools of how to question everything and how, and think about how we know what we know, right? Take a philosophy course, you yeah. get them online, you know, you could get it from the teaching company. You could buy, there's many popular books now. This is not, you don't Listen to, to your great courses on health myths. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of resources are out there. Yeah. The resources are out there. And so along with that, seek out information that doesn't conform with what you already believe. Mm. Right. Um, as a general rule, it's like, I don't believe something until I have spent enough time figuring out what the people who don't believe it say. <laughs> right. Why do the people who don't believe this thing, what do they say and why, and how do they respond to criticism of their position, of yeah. their criticism? And who has the final say at the end of the day? Where does the evidence and logic land? But until you go through that process, if you're just hearing one side of the story, it's like listening to only the defense attorney or only to the prosecuting attorney. Mm. You have no idea. It'll sound really compelling. You'd be like, yeah, damn, yeah, this guy's guilty. Yeah. Then you hear the defense, like, holy shit, you know, this is a completely different narrative, yeah, a completely that's different right. perspective on reality. But everything is that way. Most people function as you know, as a, a defense or a prosecuting attorney, we take a position and we defend it. That's mm. what we do. We have to break out of that mold. Like, don't take a position. The Absolutely. position is, I'm just going to think about this skeptically, objectively, think, look at the facts and be flexible and be willing to change my mind and just sort of float lightly on conclusions and beliefs. Don't sink down into like, this is what I believe. Yeah. And my identity is based upon this. You have to really allow yourself to sort of float on top of beliefs so that you can shift with the evidence and with logic and new ideas and not be weighed down by your own beliefs. That's a great point. Labels. Yeah. Know? That's an absolutely yeah. great point. Steve, thank you so much. I just want to reiterate to people, my favorite podcast outside of this podcast, obviously, is <laughs> Steve's, which is the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I've been listening to it for many, many years and it's brilliant. Steve also has the uh, Science-Based Medicine blog and he's also got Neurologica and both mm -hmm. of them are bookmarked onto my web browser and I recommend everybody do the same. Uh, Steve's also just recently released the Skeptic's Guide book, uh, which I think is available everywhere now. It's yeah. All yeah. over the place. You've even got it in Chinese, don't you? Yep. Well, maybe not Chinese, Mandarin or, or Cantonese. I probably should be more specific in whatever language it would yeah, be. I, yeah, I think I, and I forget. I, I think, think it's it'll be Mandarin. Can I think Mandarin? it's in Mandarin. And then, uh, yeah, Russia, Russian, Korean, German, Slovakian for some reason, Spanish. Brilliant. Um, so and a couple others I'm forgetting. But yeah, it's been translated a number of times. Uh, and then there's uh, a, a North America distributor and then the UK distributor, which covers Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. So the, the entire English speaking world is covered as well. So you can find Steve anyway. Google Steve, Dr. <laughs> Stephen Novella. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's been a lot, been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. How uh, was that? Yeah, that was great. Um, for me, I was fanboying a little bit to have Steve on the podcast. What did you think? You didn't give me a chance to talk. You were so in love. I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I thought it was great. And I think there's so much information there for aspiring health professionals, um, listeners, even just anyone listening to the podcast to be able to take some of those points mm. on board. Do you think skeptically, Matt? I'm skeptical of it, I think. You're skeptical of skepticism? Yeah. Because <laughs> I actually thought, like you said, it was a bit of a, it's a bit of an ugly word. Because when you hear, like, you know, you someone makes a claim scientifically and then someone would retort to it by saying, oh, I'm a bit skeptical of that. Yeah. Which sounds like you're denying it, like mm. denying science or cynical or pessimistic kind of thing, right? But in fact, it's we're trying to understand how you should be thinking. And so I, you're not skeptical of it at all. No, no. You're just being silly. That's right. I was being silly. <laughs> Pessimistic. Now, but what I did like was um, it's probably something that we should be establishing in a formative period of our education. So yeah. early on in our schooling, we should be really learning the skills of how to think. And and like you said, uh, it's not until postgraduate that people are really realizing this, right? Which I, didn't, I, th- I didn't think like that until. I was in my PhD. Yeah, I think I had oh. six years of of basically university level education before yeah. I started thinking skeptically. Now there were there were moments in which I thought about things skeptically, but and it's I, only because you're motivated for it, right? Like you have correct. a motivation just to question that. Yeah, but for other things, you just don't even entertain it. Yeah, that's right. So, and I think what I did was I made sure that when something happened, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what it is, when I had a particular reaction to it, a lot of the time your first reaction is an emotive reaction, not an intellectual reaction. And so what I used to do was I used to go with that particular feeling, that emotion. Uh, and because I felt it, it must be right. But in actual fact, you need to question that emotion. Why are you feeling that in the moment? Are you, are you being motivated by, is it simply just em- emotional motivation? Do you have a narrative? Is Has something happened in your past that allows for you or your upbringing that allows for you to think that particular way? Is it correct? Yeah. Is it right? Question it. Because it's not something that your brain wants to contend with, right? To, to yeah. question, right? Because if you feel doubt in something that you sit with, then your body or brain's reaction is to, to try and doubt it to make you feel better, right? Yeah. So many of us sit in that space. Don't trust your brain. Your, your brain just, like you said, wants you to be comfortable in the moment. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, true or false, but if it, makes, if it sits well with you, then your brain's going to make you comfortable with it. This is, you know, one of the reasons we didn't even get to touch upon it with Steve. But, you know, one of the reasons why we see faces in clouds and in rocks and, you know, on the surface of Mars and on the moon is because... You're saying that's not true. Uh, we I swear I saw a dog in the cloud. We'll need to ask Steve. But, you know, we like seeking patterns because patterns make sense. It means something can happen because something has caused it to happen. And we're comfortable with that. But like Steve said, there's a lot of times where it's just, we don't know what's going on and we need to learn how to be comfortable with that. Yeah. And and for me, I actually feel quite comfortable with the world being gray. I mean, I don't see that as a bad thing that, you know, particularly in the, in the context of COVID, I don't see it as a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. Um, Unless I catch it, um, <laughs> that you don't see COVID that, as a bad thing. That this virus yeah. popped into existence from another animal, let's say, and is spreading through the community, through the world. You do see that as a bad I, thing, I, yes, but but in its principle, I don't. Whereas I think a lot of people feel. You mean you don't see it as though it's nefarious, yeah. like there's intent right. behind it, right. yeah. So, but but some individuals think because there's so much unknown uncertainty it's easier for them to think, well, it must have come about by a bad means. It's not It's not possible that it came from an animal to human. Yeah. It must have been made in the lab and it's been spread that way. But like Steve said, um, for that to be coordinated would be so difficult. Imagine trying to yeah. pull off that. Like humans aren't that smart. No, no. And that's the thing. When people say, oh, there's this big conspiracy, for example, going to the moon, oh, they all just recorded it in a studio. Who's going to keep that secret? Yeah. You think that the the hundred people that was needed in order to do that film recording is just going to leave that day and not tell somebody, not tell their partner, not tell their friends? I mean, people, uh, we we're we're messy, right? We're we just we're messy and we talk. Yeah. And I I can't I can't see uh, too many conspiracy theories being um being wholeheartedly true. So I thought that was great, and I think right now is a has good- anything 
going to change for you? Well, like I said, I've been listening to Steve's podcast for nine years. Um, I love the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It has allowed me to think a particular way. Like Steve said, we all have our biases. And I think if you recognize your bias by stopping and thinking about thinking. so And it's interesting when we were looking, we're doing a bit of research for this. Mm. We were actually looking into the logical fallacies and the biases that we have. And there's like hundreds of uh, them. Yeah, we <laughs> didn't even touch upon them with Steve. Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds of logical, every, every thought you have every day is potentially a logical fallacy yeah. because a lot of it's going to be motivated reasoning, yeah. right? A lot of it's going to be uh, emotional based. So just, we're not saying you need to flip the entire way that you think, but just question. And I think that's a good place to start, like Steve said. Or end. Or end. Or end this podcast. Everyone, you can find us on Instagram at Dr. Mike Todorovich. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. We've got a wonderful YouTube channel that everyone should subscribe to. I'm actually sceptical that Facebook exists. Yeah, I I may have deleted it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, YouTube, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical YouTube. Uh, Just have a look. We've we've got uh, hundreds of videos about anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology. We're both on Twitter at Dr. Mike Todorovich and at, what's yours? Dr. Bartox um, yeah. at Dr. Bartox, or you can join our actual uh, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. Makes sense. We've got a lot of things, don't we? Uh, and uh, give us a five-star rating. If you don't think we're worth five stars, then don't even uh, bother. Don't give us one. Don't give us, f- well, four's pretty good, but we'd like five. And leave a comment so we know what you think. Send us an email at uh, GU Biosciences. God, there's a lot to go through, isn't there? Anyway, thank you for listening. We will see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.